This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Burger King. Most importantly, the Whopper is on the table today, guys. So the founder of Burger King, uh, David Egerton, passed away earlier this month. So we were having Burger King in the office today. Good friend of the firm, good client of our firm. Uh, Love the folks down in Miami. Um, I usually, you know, go with the Bacon King as my kind of sandwich of choice. But out of deference to Mr. Egerton, the original, where it all started, I'm going with the Whopper. Franklin? I'm going to go with the um, Sourdough King. I, th- I feel like they used to be called the Frisco Burger or something. They changed it up. But you can't you, – that's unique to BK. I'm, I'm a big fan. It's I food, like it. It's food innovation. That's what Edgar Tim was all about. I think people forget that uh, you know BK predates McDonald's. I mean, Edgar was out there revolutionizing the industry. Renzo, what do you have on the table? I got to stick with the Rodeo King, guys. That tangy barbecue sauce, the crispy onion rings. I just – I can't walk away from it. <laughs> You are the rodeo king. <laughs> oh my God. All right, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, The Job Market. It's getting tighter by the day, and the impact of the new economy is just beginning. What are the cultural shifts and policies affecting how companies recruit workers and retain employees? As Starbucks gets ready to shut down 8,000 stores next month for racial bias training, what message are they communicating to employees about their brand? Plus, several updates to stories we've been talking about here on the pod, including a new soda tax study, ice raids, and an influential conservative think tank calling for a pay-leave policy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, alongside Align Partners Joe Kefauver and Franklin Coley. Joe Rinzel is in the D.C. bubble, wallpapering his uh, small office in the D.C. area with the Comey memos that he's been scouring over for the last 24 hours or so. Well, with, with stacks of wrappers of Rodeo King burgers <laughs> populating the floor. You gotta love a good memo, guys. You gotta love a good memo. He's on a uh, binge. Joe Kefauver is back in town after a trip to a uh, conference, which was essentially a who's who in the restaurant business. Um, and one of the topics, obviously, um, can't get away from this one at this point, is the job market within the industry. Uh, and the feeling was uh, it is as bad as people think it is. What, what was some of the discussion you were a part of, Kefauver? Yes, I was part of a presentation that uh, I think the title was, this is the this is the worst job market you'll ever see. There's a lot of discussion uh, about, about the job market and the scarcity of employees and what operators are facing trying to recruit and retain and, and, and what's going on out there. And not only um, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the impacts that wage and hour laws are having on the P&Ls, but really that kind of new economy and the added stress of uh, competing against other industries for those employees. And, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, a server at a restaurant uh, could walk across the street and get a job at the other restaurant. Restaurants were competing against other restaurants to, to recruit and retain. 
now with the modern economy and Uber and TaskRabbit and all these other ways, the, the employee is much more entrepreneurial. The employee has many more choices. The, 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 the power. And flexibility. Can, and flexibility. And the power is now and the employee has the power. And they're choosing employers. And so now employers are having to kind of dance for employees. And they've got to try to create you know, a value prop for the employees. They've got to create benefit packages. They've got to create a, an environment uh, and, and a brand awareness that the employee wants to be a part of. And so it's it's really changing the way companies are are, are looking at how are we going to staff these restaurants going forward? Who are we competing against? How do we keep these folks? So it was a lot of, a lot of futuristic talk. Not I mean futuristic in a sci-fi way, but a lot of down-the-road preparing for five and ten years and what the new economy is kind of doing to this old economy P&L. What's, what's funny is, you know, what was the title of the panel? It's like, worst job market you've ever seen or something? Yes. So from kind of an employee perspective, right, this is the best job market they've ever Right, employee perspective, yeah. Yeah, there, there's just tons of opportunities. So at some point there's like a, you know, there's a, there's a tipping point there in terms of, you know, you want low unemployment, but if it gets too low, right, it starts seizing up economic growth. And... Certainly, I think that's probably the case in some markets around the country. Um, I was I'm, struck by one thing. I want to interrupt you because I'll forget because you keep reminding me how old I am. You kids get off my lawn. The, the, the lag on policy and how policy always lags behind kind of the technology curve. And here's the quote-unquote labor community trying to lock down the parameters of flexibility at a time when their target audience is expressing just the opposite sentiment. It's, it's, I, just, I was struck by that. Yeah, and they're trying to make careers out of these entry-level jobs, and people are moving with their feet. Uh, but I'm curious. I'm curious if there was discussion around, you know, the one, one of the ways that you would would solve this would be through increased productivity, through automation, and and, and other things. Was there any discussion around that? Tons of panels and breakouts around automation and, and what's going on in the workplace in terms of efficiencies and leveraging technology and front of the house ways but, but but in terms of back of the house systems as well so yeah it's 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 prevalent in the conversation it's finding its way into all kinds of conversations in all segments of the industry so and, and yeah. renzel not just restaurants retail as well uh dealing with not only the recruitment of um of new employees but then retaining them for sure and i mean we've talked about it before you see this kind of arms race of of the major brands for the last year or two in terms of raising wage announcements, benefit announcements, you know, expanding all those efforts. Uh, I think Walmart today is talking about relaxing their dress code for workers in the, in the office space. I mean, this is all reflective, reflective of their need to attract a quality workforce f- to benefit the consumer experience. And uh, I'd venture to say that maybe retail is, has been out there for a year or two on this and, and maybe other industries are, are kind of following up on that. I do think it's interesting that you know, from a legislative policy impact, you really haven't seen that. And you guys talked, touched on it a little bit right there, but you haven't seen that reaction to say, hey, these, these guys are responding to the market and they're taking advantage of it uh, themselves and they're increasing wages and increasing benefits. You know, we still need to legislate some mandates and that discussion is still going on in state capitals and cities across the country. All right, so let's get to the biggest topic of the week as the industry goes anyway. And it was a question that you were asked about, Joe Kefauver. Um, and just to give people context, this is we're, we're talking about Starbucks um, and what they are now about to do. They're going to close 8,000 stores for an afternoon next month for racial bias training for 175,000 employees. 
This is after the incident in Philadelphia where uh, two men, two African-American... Like 8,000 locations. Two African-American men were uh, arrested and escorted out of, out of the restaurant. Uh, there's a number of different ways that we can talk about this issue, but Kefauver, let's first get to how you, it was presented to you um, in in the context of who is Starbucks addressing when they make this kind of a move to deal with this issue? Is it me and the public who who buys coffee at Starbucks? Excuse me, or, or is it the employee? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And the, the, the context that I was asked in this panel was, you know, who. Who is Starbucks talking to? You know, we talk about that a lot on on this pod and uh, conversations with, with clients and others in terms of, you know, whenever you do a move like that, there are multiple audiences. You're talking to the public, quote unquote. You're talking to elected officials, opinion leaders, the newspaper. You're talking to your customers. You're talking to employees. For me, I was struck, or I went to was on the employee side, right? We just talked about competition for employees, and you know, and one of the one of the one of the ways you compete. Is that corporate culture and what does your brand mean out on the street in the community and are you a place that somebody wants to work in a destination location they feel good about working what does your brand mean you know starbucks has a long legacy of being out there on public policy issues they've been out there on healthcare. they've been out there on benefit issues and so forth and so i think the average worker out there kind of gets a sense of what that brand's about this action to me reinforced that brand you know, the reaction of the CEO, Kevin Johnson, kind of reinforced that brand. To me, again, when you're doing it right, you're talking to all those audiences. That's called being aligned, no pun intended, you know. But to me, the real audience he was talking to are those employees, say, reinforcing the kind of culture they have, what their value system is, talking to future employees about what that environment looks like, and they have no tolerance for X, Y, and Z. So to me, I I looked at it more from an employee. That was was the real audience they were talking to. and the other piece is, you know, for the other brands, you know, that was a very quick and thorough response. We, we can agree from, with what was the right from, thing to do. From or, the top. From the top. You, and we can agree, should they have blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter. It was quick and it was decisive and they went with it. And it set a new bar for corporate responses. I think so. And so if you're another company, you're like, all right, the bar has just been set that no matter how isolated the incident is in one restaurant, the CEO can parachute in tomorrow. And if I'm... Some of the bigger brands, I look back. I'm gonna say, you know, I look back and go, man, I'm gonna be judged against that one day. Because one yeah. day, the one day the problems gonna to come to my restaurants, matter of time, right? And that's the bar that the media and everybody else is gonna hold me against. That's got to be pretty sobering the, for a lot of companies. The one, the one thing, and where this just happened, so you know, a couple months when we have some distance, we'll be able to better speak to, you know, how how big a deal this was, what the impacts were, what it meant. But I mean, the first thing that struck me was, you know business school classes where they use the um, the Tylenol case study when they did the big recall and it was quick and decisive and it cost a lot of money but it it cemented that brand is trustworthy with cu- customers and they that's studied as a case study in in corporate behavior in creating trust with with your your stakeholders in this case customers was largely the group they were focused on this struck me is that big of a deal that this will be a case study that is discussed in B schools and and how a brand being cognizant of its own corporate culture, how it's perceived by its employees and its customers, how it needed to react swiftly, decisively, and in a very big way. And 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 I think that's important. And the last piece, last piece I'll say is millennials are important to Starbucks, you know, in a lot of ways, they're they're their customers, they're their employees, 
and they've done a lot of programs, whether it's, um, you know, reimbursement for classes, right, college credits, that sort of thing, um, focused in that, in that audience, in that group. To that group, to millennials, to have a company that they're affiliated with that stands up for more than selling coffee and for their values and, you know, fair trade and all these things is incredibly important. And that's got to be, whether it was consciously front of mind or just subconsciously kind of ingrained in how they think and approach these issues, that was, I think, a big piece of this. So this could wind up being a case study. And you guys have both said that this kind of sets a new bar. The variable, though, is uh, in all this, which is, is the, the, the topic that Kefauver and I were discussing on the phone yesterday, is that the CEO of Starbucks and then even the chairman of Starbucks, Schultz, he they're known to their employees. They're out there invisible players. So yeah. can you so that, have, somebody talk about the, the credibility of leadership in delivering this message? He is, Kevin Johnson, not an unfamiliar face. Howard Schultz is not an unfamiliar face to their, to their employees, right? And so them being present and hands-on and engaged and involved is not a new thing. And employees don't see that as, oh, here's a guy playing for the cameras or playing for optics. He has credibility in that space already. And there are a lot of companies out there, whether it's restaurant or retail companies or whatever, CEO who walk into that, that restaurant, not a person in there know who they are, right? And when they parachute all of a sudden in, they, they don't have the, the, the veneer of authenticity that, that this company has because of the way they've handled their affairs in the past. So it's not enough to say, we're going to get out in front of this just like Starbucks did and we're going to be okay. There's a, there's a run-up time before, when, when, the, when the skies are clear that you have to start to earn that credibility. Yeah, and I'm not saying... Anybody, any company should do anything different than they already are, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the reason it worked so well for Starbucks is they had enough credibility chits in the bank where when their CEO showed up to something and having a, having a conversation with their employees about something in the public domain, their employees are very familiar with that. Joe Renzel, you're not in the room, so I didn't want to leave you out of this conversation, but what's been the buzz in the retail community about how this has been handled? I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you guys more. I mean, I don't think there's many things I can think about that they should have done that they didn't do. And the speed with the response was was impressive. And, and I do think they set the bar pretty high. I'm also interested to, you know, as Coley was saying, you know, a month or two down the road, you know, I think Starbucks, again, from a policy engagement perspective, has really prided themselves on, on being able, you know, they have a large presence in a lot of major cities, obviously, across the country. They're, they're big voices in, in some of these labor issues that we see at that level. I'm wondering, you know, how this experience might affect their ability to be, uh, you know, perceived as that, you know, honest, you know, forward-thinking company and and broker. Um, I think they're they're doing what they need to do to to kind of manage that and maintain it. Um, it'll be interesting to see a couple months, a, a year from now, you know, how that's perceived in city councils across the nation. Just want to circle back to the original point, Joe Kefauver, that you were making, though, that um, the, the, the message that this sends to employees is key, uh, potentially in terms of retaining them in the future and getting them to buy into the brand. No question. Again, you know, we talk about young, young workers in particular, millennials, however you want to classify them. You know, they, they can get the same hourly rate anywhere. They can get the same paid leave or lack thereof anywhere, right? It's It's... That, that age group wants to be a part of a brand that they, they have some type of intellectual, moral, ethical equivalency with, and they want to be supportive of that brand. And so it, it created an environment of a place that, that a large swath of that age group would want to work in. I think it was, I think it was a masterstroke. 
let's just quickly transition over to uh, another topic um, related, uh, not to Starbucks, but more to paid leave in the job market itself. Um, there was an update to uh, where conservatives, uh, where their where their beliefs are on on paid leave, and it came out of a conservative think tank. Um, what is AEI Franklin saying about paid leave and, and, and what's needed moving forward at a federal level? So AEI, American Enterprise Institute, is you know one of your kind of standard bearers in, in, in DC, but I, I guess around the country really. But it's a DC-based organization, um, conservative think tank, puts out a lot of uh, papers, policy positions, you know, weighs into a lot of conversations. They were the driving force behind um, Senator Rubio, Senator Arbarco care, right, the rollout around that. They kind of built out the conservative argument and framework for why this approach to paid leave that drew off of Social Security was a good idea. We said at the time, this is the first step in a couple steps to essentially get to portable benefits, right? And AEI came out, and it, it's kind of like in the back page of their site. If you're not really looking for it, I, I don't know you'd find it. But The title of that article, by, by the way, if you want to Google it, is Paid Leave Benefit Policy Needs to Take Into Account the Future of Work. And I would point out that the concluding line of that article is, Uh, Benefit portability is a basic principle that belongs front and center in the paid leave conversation. They lay out the case for the conservative case for portable benefits. You kind of saw this coming. This was kind of your Paul Revere moment. I mean, you know. Nostradamus over there. Yeah, yeah. since you you said so. (laughs) Yeah, no, we, we... we were looking at AI weighing in to the paid leave conversation some months ago, and it was it was basically like they're laying the foundation for portable benefits. Um, and we actually argued that both Democrats and Republicans were playing checkers and not chess because Democrats were coming out in vocal opposition to this proposal, while some Republicans were supporting it. And Quite frankly, Democrats should be fully embracing the concept of portable benefits. Essentially, you're expanding entitlements, and once they're there, they they never go away. I mean, that's we know that's how this works. The history of entitlements in America. So you would expect that Republicans would be lockstep, generally speaking, have critical of this or looking at it with a a tough eye. Fiscal hawks would would have give this a lot of scrutiny, whereas you know the labor community would be fully embracing and endorsing this concept. Kind of the opposite's been true. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because American Enterprise Institute is now basically saying we need portable benefits. We need a portable benefit system like is under consideration in Seattle right now and, and Washington State. So it's going to be interesting. No, and I, I think it's fascinating just from a political perspective. I mean, the old economy, you know, the blue-red fault lines were pretty – pretty well drawn everybody kind of knew what the what the score was this new economy and the way empowering workers and classification of workers independent contractors and and portable benefits and who's cozying up to silicon valley in the modern economy and you know it's 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 crumbling those red blue fault lines and trying to reassemble which teams on which side of what issue now and so we're you know where a traditional Democrat 
may come down on some of these new economy issues or a traditional Republican may come down. I think it's anybody's guess, and they could be all over the board. So, Renzel, um, you know, th- I know this is one space that you've done a, a lot of work in, kind of disruption in these platforms, and, you know, there are these ongoing conversations around, you know, what's Facebook's responsibility? What is Amazon's responsibility? You know, how do you update these these laws and rules to to apply to this new economy and portable benefits is a piece of that you know where do you see that conversation go i mean there's a supreme court oral arguments this week on a related topic so where do you see this conversation going yeah i mean certainly you know disruption i think is affecting everything right i mean you know the market in terms of what we purchase how we purchase you know how how consumers act and then how workers are treated and what needs to happen in terms of response and we've talked about it before you know how does how does the need for portable benefits, how do some of the experimentation that some of these retailers and restaurants want to work on in terms of delivery, how do those policies bump up against existing labor law and how can policymakers be flexible with their approaches, right? And, and allow for waivers and allow for, you know, experimentation in this space. And and I think that's that's certainly coming in. You, you mentioned the South Dakota case, you know, near and dear to retail's heart. I mean, that's really specific to sales tax collection issues but again it's an it's an experiment in how does government respond to a new economy and 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 folks would kind of chuckle about the new economy related to this case because we're talking about internet sales e-commerce which has been going on for quite a bit of time um and you know the interesting part to me is you've got uh, you know a lot of folks paying attention to this it's a landmark case it's potentially redefining how states can go about collecting sales tax um, and a lot of the news and, you know, hoopla around the case is about, you know, the questions that were asked in the court and, you know, which justices are on which side. You know, from my perspective, none of that really matters until June when they come down with the decision. Um, you know, and, and I think justices go about their questioning in different ways for different reasons. Um, but this is something we're focused on. I think it has the potential to really upend the entire system and will... If it, if it goes the way of South Dakota, uh, in terms of that decision in June, we're going to see a lot of platform legislation moving, you know, in the next cycle and maybe even potentially towards the end of this year that is addressing, you know, is offering the opportunity for these state legislatures to keep offers point, whether they're Democrat or Republican led um, to really take a hard look at some of these policies that have been in place for decades and really redefine how they're going to approach it in these new economy stages where you're talking about the internet, we're talking about gig economy, you're talking about portable benefits. I mean, all of this kind of comes into play in that disruptor uh, headline, and, and it'll be interesting to see how it all works out. The disruption, whether it's, you know, in the benefits conversation, whether it's taxing, whether, you know, all all this, it's scrambling the politics. It's scrambling kind of the red-blue politics. And I think the next couple of years are going to be incredibly pivotal in terms of which way these politics shake out and fall. It's time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business operators around the country. We've got a very long list today. Renzel, get us started with wages. Sure. You got a couple things on the preemption issue first. Uh, The Wisconsin governor actually signed into a law uh, that preempts localities from passing wage laws. Um, So that's something that had passed through uh, and the governor signed it. 
In Colorado, you have the opposite going on. You have a House committee passing a bill that would allow locals to actually raise the wage higher than the state level, uh, although that's likely not to make it all the way through with uh, some Republicans in the Senate voicing their opposition. Uh, and then on the $15 front, we've got some movement in Connecticut. There's some controversy around the cost of, of the overall raise to $15 to the state. Somewhere around $50 million was the fiscal analysis, and they're operating under uh, a deficit currently. Um, so that'll certainly embolden uh, folks on the Senate side in particular. Uh, as folks will recall, that Senate is split 1818 Republican to Democrat. So we'll see how that moves. And then um, you've got North Dakota, you've got a ballot uh, initiative with $15 language being certified by the Secretary of the State. Uh, now advocates would need to uh, collect a whopping 13,000 signatures uh, by June 9th, although it is North Dakota. So, um, you know, they might have trouble finding 13,000 people, but we'll keep an eye on it. I just think it's interesting, you know, uh, in the, I think it was the 2014 election cycle, we had a number of um, uh, very red states that had ballot initiatives on the, on the ballot. And at a time when um, in the same election cycle where they overwhelmingly returned their Republican candidate to office, they also overwhelmingly passed these ballot initiatives. So I think operators need to recognize that just because it's North Dakota and it's a very red state, and it really means nothing on a ballot initiative for minimum wage. None of them has 15, but you're right. Yes, it's 15 going to 2021, so it's a, it's a big increase very fast. So those, that, will, that will determine the dynamics, but um, these ballot initiatives don't fail very often. Two items tied to the tip credit, Kefauver, Minnesota, and New York. Yeah, so there's a, an effort in Minnesota uh, to basically create a, a tip wage. Minnesota is one of the, the, the seven states that um, doesn't currently have a tip credit. Um, the, the Republicans in the legislature are trying to figure out if there's a way that they can kind of freeze the, the minimum wage where it currently is, $9.65 an hour, uh, for tipped employees. It's in response to the $15 bill that passed Minneapolis, the one that's pending in St. Paul. And so we'll see. I think it's a pretty uphill, uphill battle. And what about New York? Yeah, so the, the, there are a bunch of regional hearings uh, starting actually today, Friday, the uh, uh, April 20, uh, across the state. Hearings regarding elimin eliminating essentially over time the state tip credit. And so, Franklin, uh, you, you saw the, the hearing notice. What's uh, the Department of uh, Labor's web portal for this whole deal? Yeah, what they call Not it? just this hearing, but for all the hearings. And the information center is referred to as the sub minimum wage area, um, which does not bode well. Yeah, if they're already calling it the sub minimum wage, you kind of know how this, this story ends. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that, that hearing process across the state, seven planned hearings starts today. All right, moving over to paid leave, let's start at the federal level. Franklin? Folks may remember that in the tax reform package that was uh, past the end of last year, um, included in that was a tax credit for employers that offer paid leave up to 25% of employees' wages. Um, could be applied for as a, as a credit when, when those employees go and leave. Um, IRS has now issued the guidance document on that, so employers should take a look at it and uh, see if there's an opportunity to get some uh, uh, less in that tax bill. Uh, four states to get to, Colorado, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine. Renzel, you take them. Sure. Uh, Colorado, uh, you got, a, you got uh, kind of a similar thing to what I talked about earlier. You got the House passing an employer, an employee-funded, rather, state-run family medical leave program. It's happened a couple years in a row now. It's usually been blocked in the Senate. We expect the same thing to happen this time around, but we'll keep an eye on it. Connecticut, uh, similar controversy around the cost of programs. They're looking to expand their existing paid leave program uh, to focus on smaller businesses. 
Um, and so there's some question uh, that folks have about the startup funding of these programs and how that's going to play out with their existing deficit. Similar situation will move to the House floor, might face resistance in the Senate, which I mentioned before was uh, evenly split. New Hampshire, uh, a state we've been watching very closely this cycle, uh, thought things were going to move. Uh, Governor Sununu has announced his opposition to what passed the House. Uh, so that's the new news this week. Um, and that will certainly have an effect on how it, it progresses through the Senate. I think there's a lot of folks um, that are, are you know, renewing their opposition in, in light of Governor Sununu weighing in there. So we'll see how it goes. But it's probably um, less likely to pass than it was a couple weeks back. And then finally, in Portland, Maine, uh, the city, the mayor has proposed a paid sick leave ordinance for all city businesses. Um, so that's everybody. There is no threshold for small businesses. Uh, that proposal will have its first public hearing on April 24th. I think in context, it's just important to note that every week, it seems the issue is on the move in four or five states or jurisdictions. And it just continues. A, you know, the, the wage issue kind of goes up and down and comes and goes, whereas the, the leave issue just has a steady, steady progression across the country. It's just interesting to watch. Want to get to an item on wage theft, uh, heading over to Chicago. And Franklin, why don't you tell us about this uh, potential agency that could be formed? Yeah, Arise Chicago, which is a very prominent labor group, uh, worker center in the Chicago area, is pushing for this. They have 35 aldermen signed on. And essentially what they do is create an office of labor standards. Um, L.A. has something like this. You know, the former labor secretary, Hilda Solis and company in L.A., formed a mini DOL in L.A. Chicago is looking to do the same. So this would investigate allegations of wage theft, but also look at any other, you know, potential labor violations or labor laws in the city. Um, it just kind of creates another level of government that employers will have to interact with and, and deal with. And I'm interested to see how the mayor responds. If you remember, you know, as the worker center, there's an issue, an issue being driven by a worker center. The last time around, when the mayor was not as responsive to a worker center driven issue, the high minimum Chewy wage. Garcia. Chewy Garcia ran, Love it. ran for mayor in 2015 and came really, had to go to a runoff, came really close to knocking Rahm out of office. Rom's up for re-election next year in 2019. Here's another worker center issue coming at him. So pure politics will go into how, this, how the mayor responds. Quick one, Franklin, uh, on labor policy. In New York City, the, the city wants to approve sexual harassment prevention training for companies? Um, the city is mandating now. They, they passed the New York um, Sexual Harassment Act. They will mandate that employers provide um, city-approved training. So the city itself is going to come out with a couple um, training modules, but then I think companies, it's unclear, they're still kind of figuring this out, uh, but the city is also going to come up with its own modules and then approve employer modules. So this, um, they're going to take a year basically to figure out the details, but expect to see more cities kind of, and, and potentially states also going this path. Um, it's essentially obviously moving, working towards addressing the concerns of the Me Too movement. Quick update to a story we first told you about on the podcast last week, which is uh, the ice raids in Tennessee, specifically um, at a meatpacking plant there. What has been the state's response to those ice raids? And what's, what's the big picture? Renzel or Franklin, either one of you. 
I, I think the bigger picture here is, is there's obviously a lot of political rhetoric around it um, in an election cycle. You've got some anti-sanctuary uh, city bills, uh, a bill uh, in, in the legislature, and you've got an amendment proposed to that bill from, from the Democrat side that would establish uh, penalties, felony level of penalties on, on folks that are employing uh, 50 or more undocumented immigrants. So again, it, you know, kind of taking the immigration issue and focusing it in on the role and responsibility of the employer in the state. Yeah, and it also um, opens up if you're an employer that has been found to be knowingly employing unauthorized workers, then this subjects you to all kinds of investigation and other wage theft claims or other labor violations. It's interesting, we have not seen something this strident or punitive pop up yet. But obviously, immigration is an issue that's going to stay in public conversation, in the news, and it's going to be discussed in the campaign trail. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see if this gets picked up anywhere else and or if this gets legs within Tennessee that's kind of at the end of their legislative session. I think one thing I found interesting was that a, a Democrat using file an amendment to use the immigration, use immigration violations as a door opener to investigate companies for other wage and hour violations, uh, wage theft and so forth. So I thought it was an interesting kind of turn on, you know, reflexively you think they'd be against what, what this bill is, but they're going to ride the anti-immigrant, you know, type of legislation to open the door on other violations. It's kind of interesting. Uh, one other follow-up to last week's podcast, we mentioned the study out of Berkeley, California regarding soda tax and its impact. Uh, and Franklin, you had mentioned a study that would be coming out of Drexel, Drexel University, a big five school out of Philadelphia. Um, what they, what they, they reveal? They found the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Berkeley numbers are out. Study found that um, consumption of sweetened beverages was reduced and water consumption was increased. And the Drexel study in Philly found the exact same thing. So the bottom line here is these first two soda taxes appear to be working as activists and the cities, I guess, had hoped. And so that's going to provide wind in the sails to other other advocates. Who said last week, it's a, it's a perfect storm of, of clouds coming together. They've got money and organization on their side. They've got data that's coming out on their side. And they figured out how not to go after point of sales taxes, but go after excise taxes, which are easier to pass. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And, and Palo Alto is, is kind of the next city that has looks to be diving into this. They're drafting uh, a ballot measure now that the city council is considering putting in the ballot. So we're going to see more of these. None of this will prevent Joe Kefauver from making a pit stop in the break room for a fresh can of tab. Mm. Nothing better than a nice, refreshing <laughs> tab. So I'm shotgun one on the way in here. No. There's that reaction to food we were waiting for on yes. this show. <laughs> yes, yes. Take longer than usual. <laughs> But showed up right now. Well, you didn't say tab. You had no tab. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Working Lunch. We'll talk to you again next week.